when the replay official did not stop I, the game. I'm not going to comment on that. I'll get fined for the rest of my life if I get commented on that. We had a great belief in our locker room. We didn't have to do anything special, just be us. I was so proud of this team. We had so much fun, it ought to be illegal. Any idiot can say whatever they want, and they usually do, and they're negative. And all I see, to me, I've gotten to a point now when I see things like that, I feel sorry that those people feel that way, that their lives don't have the purpose, the passion, and the excitement and the enjoyment that some of us do. Our purpose is to win, make no mistake about it, but it's to win the right way. And our goal, our stated goal, is going to be to win the Sunbelt, uh, sorry, to win the SEC East. Talk about the reception you received from the fan, fan base. Did you ever think you'd be kissing and hugging babies at the tarmac when you got the point? Um, a lot better than another tarmac experience that I had. <laughs> I didn't think of it. It was like, like an anniversary or something like that. We're coming. We're coming. And we ain't backing down. I said in my press conference back in December that I didn't feel like there was anything in South Carolina that we lacked to be a championship program, that we had everything that we needed. I am even more convinced of that now after being there for seven months. Oh, welcome in to the latest episode of that SEC podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bratton. I go by SEC Mike on Twitter, and I'm joined as always by my cousin Shane. Who goes by Big Orange Balls on Twitter? What are you up to, you big Tennessee homer? Hey, buddy, what's going on? Oh, man, we got a great guest lined up for the listeners on this one. Brett Siaka, pick six previews, gonna talk SEC football. And my favorite thing about uh, doing interviews with Brett Shane, uh-huh. he hits on all 14 teams like. They matter like this show does. You know, that we set out to do that purposely, and he sets out to do his preview magazine the same way, gives every team equal coverage. So we're going to hit on every single team here coming up in just a bit. I think the fans are really going to appreciate this one, and I think Brett was really disappointed. <laughs> you didn't show up for your one interview a year. <laughs> As you guys know, I get to I get to do one interview every single year, and this one's it. And yes, I did miss it, uh, and I apologize. But you know, the, the the big thing that I love about it is, you know, sometimes we we live in a bubble, mm-hmm. uh, this SEC bubble, and and it's kind of hard to get an outside perspective on the SEC. You know, Brett he he, he doesn't just cover the SEC; he covers all the schools. He's got a fantastic magazine that comes out every single year, ranks up there with Athlon, in my opinion. And uh, I just love the information that he he brought and and that he keep continues to bring every single year. He's like he's like Santa, you know. <laughs> he comes in, he comes in bearing gifts with his magazine, and and uh, it's hard not to fall in love with it. And you you, you find yourself needing it uh, during the season. It's just it's just a good read. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Shane. And hey, before we get to that. Uh, man, I had to bring this up because I th- I just thought this was one of the weirdest damn things, and I figured Missouri fans would would love us talking about it. Shane, did you see this graphic? And if uh, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll throw it up here. Did you see this graphic that Kansas put out? I mean, they're they're basically uh, you know offering they want other conferences to gobble them up with the Big Twelve going away essentially. But uh, but the highlight of it is you see at the bottom it says new airport terminal. 
coming in 2023. <laughs> uh, so you can get the hell out of that town. <laughs> <laughs> Who puts, you know, you know, you live in a shitty place. If uh, a new airport terminal in two years down the line coming is, uh, ha- has made the graphic of uh, why your city is so awesome. Oh, I love it. I love it, man. And it's right before. So they show you how you can get out of town <laughs> right before they tell you how great a place it is to live. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, they're doing some advertising. Uh, I talked to a, a buddy of mine today, actually, a huge Oklahoma City fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of thought, you know, what is the fallout? Yeah, you're kind of curious. These guys are you're looking at Kansas. They're already, you know, shopping. Um, I'm sure these other cats are doing it. I said Oklahoma City. I meant Oklahoma State. Uh, oh, Gundy. I bet he wished he took that Tennessee offer now, but <laughs> <laughs> but he's on that sinking ship, baby, because all the all the good teams came over. So uh, I am kind of curious what the fallout thing is, and uh, because he- here you are seeing it. You're seeing it with Kansas. It's just a matter of time before you start seeing some like real smoke. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, without a doubt. And uh, I mean, that, that league is, uh, you know, the, the sooner it goes away, that's probably good for the SEC uh, with, with Texas and Oklahoma. And uh-huh. it, naturally, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Shane, before we get to our interview here with uh, Brett Sianka. But I don't know if you've been paying attention, Shane, but it's coming from Texas. It's coming from Oklahoma. It's coming from the SEC. And they are all singing the same tune about Texas and Oklahoma coming to the SEC no sooner than July 1, 2025. And they're basically verbatim saying that. And the the reason I bring that up, there was an article in The Athletic, really good read. I I recommend everybody, if you're a subscriber to that uh, platform, to go check it out. Seth Emerson, he covers – the Georgia Bulldogs for the athletic. Yeah. And he interviewed the president of the university of Georgia, a guy by the name of uh, Jer Moorhead. Yeah. And he is actually also the president of the sec. And when the sec voted to have Texas and Oklahoma come in, these are the guys that do the voting. They're the, it's not the uh, coaches obviously, or the ADs. It's the presidents of the universities. And he asked them, you know, when did this, Texas and Oklahoma talk begin. Yeah. And he said, the first I heard of it was Wednesday when Texas and Oklahoma said they were coming to the sec. So, Oh, I mean, I mean, (laughs) is this, do you think this is something that just happened? I mean, it it felt, obviously it felt really quick, but Mm -hmm. in the back of your mind, you're thinking that this thing's been playing for quite some time, but I, I don't know, man. Is is that why we're sticking firm to the 2025 until they find some sort of loophole to get in there sooner? That's exactly what I was going to say, because you got all parties involved saying, you know, hold the train on all this talk, 2025, mm-hmm. July 1. You got the dang president of the SEC who just voted for this thing saying, well, we didn't we did not discuss it until last Wednesday when we had to vote to let them in. So you're telling me that uh, when media days is rolled around and there's reports of Texas uh-huh. and Oklahoma coming, he didn't pick up the phone and say, what's this all about? <laughs> no, of course not. I mean, you'd have to be stupid to think that was the case. But what is going on here? They're being very, very smart. 
They're not wanting to get sued by the Big 12. Yeah. Or, you know, we've already seen the Big 12's already suing, not suing, but cease and desist to ESPN. Uh, you know, they are, are being very, very careful about what is being said. And the fact that, like I said, you got Texas, Oklahoma, the SEC, Greg Sankey, they're all repeating the same message. That tells me, Shane, that, uh, again, they have, they have thought this out, they have communicated, and the message is being relayed no matter who they're re- relaying it to. It's the exact same. And that is a, because Texas and Oklahoma are working overtime to get out of this deal as quickly as possible. And as soon as they start shooting off at the mouth, yeah, we've been had this. We've been working on this for years. You know what I mean? The Big 12 is going to have a case if you start throwing that stuff out there. So I want to caution everybody that if you're here in that 2025 date, uh, don't get hung up on that. They're saying what they've got to say at the time being. You know, they're going to be in the SEC very, very soon. Mike, this is us when we were kids, man. You know, it's like, you know, we had a plan, but we all said, hey, listen, we're going to tell our parents this, you know? Exactly. So, yeah, we're going on a church trip. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Has nothing to do with the wild cabin party. Nothing at all. So, uh, no, this is exactly... This is exactly what you would expect to hear right out of the gate. These there's these lawyers and stuff, man, that they, they're working on it. I guarantee, I mean, I'd almost put money. I'm a terrible better, but I'd almost put my mortgage on the fact that uh these guys are gonna be in the league next year. I mean, it's just gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And to kind of, you know, it's similar re- related, but not totally. If you've if you missed it. Uh, after all this news came out, then you start seeing some people upset saying, well, hell, no wonder the SEC is behind this expansion of the playoff because the whole time they were working behind the scenes to get Texas and Oklahoma. And now that, you know, you got two more premier programs coming to your league, of course you'd want expansion because you you got to figure the SEC is going to be sending, you know, three, four, five, maybe even six teams to a 12-team playoff, and then you got other media outlets saying, oh, well, now the Big Ten and the Big 12 and all this, they're saying, hold the brakes. We may, we may not be in favor of this expansion now that uh, we, knew, we know why the SEC was behind it. And Greg Sankey was on the Paul Feinbaum show. I want to play this quick clip. You'll understand why I want to, really wanted to play this one. It was almost, I'm going to paraphrase here because that's not exactly what the new Pac-12 commissioner said, but I mean, the inference was that, that, that you were, that this was all, this was all going on uh, at the same time that you were sitting in, in, with others, including Bowlesby, with, with the college football playoff. And, and I, I know it's a long question, but you, you're on the record of saying we were happy with four. Uh, I think the, one of the last times we talked, could, could you address uh, those inferences from from people that you, I'm sure you don't know that well yet, but but ultimately will be sitting at very important tables with. Oh, absolutely! I'm I'm more than happy to be to be clear and direct. First of all, uh, we are not the conference that's been clamoring for college football playoff expansion. That's come repeatedly from others, from commissioners, from presidents or chancellors of universities, athletics directors, head football coaches, even in the media the call for college football expansion has been present. And we've said, and I've said to you many times, for has worked, is working, and it can continue to work. And I've even said that subsequent 
to the identification of a format for consideration. And we need to understand that's exactly where we are in this process. Here's a format after looking at a variety of options and the charge for those of us appointed to a working group was to check our logos, our conference ball caps at the door, and think about college football. So let's just be candid. The, the Pac-12 hasn't had regular access into the playoff. I, I happen to be one who thinks an adjustment that, that opens that up should be considered. And so the allocation of automatic opportunities for conference champions is a nod to offering that consistency of opportunity for many. Uh, we could simply stay with the four best teams. I, I'd be satisfied or interested in discussing that further if there are concerns about the 12-team format entered. But I still think the, the values and the fundamentals and the objectives present in our working group's consideration are relevant today, even with the breaking news of this week, and d deserve the kind of consideration that we all committed to provide way back in June. That doesn't mean it's automatic or that it will happen soon. I think there was a rush to think, oh, we'll just change this as quickly as possible. I, I as you know, was never one of those. Uh, but uh, the breaking news doesn't remove the relevance of the need to consider uh, different format moving forward. All right, Shane. So I, this is just Greg Sankey getting out and just com combating those uh, reports, letting everybody know that, uh, hell, the SEC has dominated the four-team playoff. They could, it could be 12. It could be 30-team playoff. But the That's SEC it. is going to dominate whatever format that is. You know, this is almost – I think this is also him a little bit – you know, I think we've come to find out very, very quickly just what a powerful presence Greg Sankey is in the – not only in the SEC, obviously, but all of college football, because nobody knew this was this news was coming. Yet he's making moves, anticipating, uh, you know, the expansion of the playoff before he even gets Texas and Oklahoma on board, which only took him a week to do. Yeah, big swing and Sankey, you know, <laughs> he don't he don't care, he don't care what you think. <laughs> we go back to BCS. We're we're still going to get a team in there, so. Uh, no, this is, this is, this is SEC, man. It's, it's everybody else in the SEC and it'll always be that way. Uh, have we let a few slip ups? Yes. Obviously look at Clemson, but I'm telling you, brother, it is an Ohio state. Uh, but this is, we just, we just created a power conference. Mm -hmm. I, I just, there's just no way you're going to keep the best SEC teams out of this playoff. doesn't matter. Like he said, it could be four, it could be 10. It doesn't matter. Ten, uh, SEC will represent a few teams in there. All right, Shane, well, we've held off long enough. You ready to get to our interview here with uh, Brett Sialka of Pick 6 Previews? Yeah, let's do it. Well, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Sialka, Pick 6 Previews, the best college football Ball preview magazine on the market really appreciate you hopping on the line brett breaking down your sec projections for the 2021 season yeah thanks for having me mike uh our second annual podcast together i, I always look forward to this one breaking down the sec uh for you shane and the listeners uh you know thanks for the praise i appreciate it this is the 10th annual book uh the 10th annual edition i've done um, you know, launched in 2012, and each season I put together a preseason preview book similar to the ones on newsstands. Uh, I've actually been graded the most accurate Power 5 predictor amongst all of them, uh, online, digital, or on newsstands, so uh, since 2012. 
So, uh, yeah, once the confetti drops in January, I hunker down for the next seven months writing this thing and, you know, calling coaches, calling coordinators, studying film, the whole bit. So excited to break it down for you and the listeners. Before we get rolling here, Brett, can you inform the listeners where can they find your book? And here's probably my favorite thing about it. You spend as much time on Vanderbilt as you do Alabama, just as an example. You cover every single Power 5 football program with equal attention, equal detail. Uh, Can you give the listeners some insight on where to find your outstanding Pick 6 previews? Yeah, thanks. It's pick6previews.com, at pick6previews on Twitter. And I have a nice uh, discount code for that SEC podcast. Just simply type in SEC at checkout if you're interested. And, uh, you know, real quickly, what differentiates my book from the ones on newsstands? First off, it's a one-man show. It's just me. Um, the other guides out there have about 100 writers. Each, each guy does one team, and they compile it. But uh, I'm going all 65 teams myself across conferences, across divisions, um, digging really deep. You know, you're getting more per page, more per team. And I have my – uh, my analytics on the left side of the page with nice infographics, but putting it back into readable terms. Um, you know, less about the, the heights and weights of each of these guys and, and the number of returning starters, more so about, you know, program history, the coaching schemes, the X's and O's, um, you know, the rivalries, all the tradition of the game, too. So, um, and then all my numbers there to, to back it up. So, yeah, it's pick6previews.com at pick6previews. And, and that one last note about the Vanderbilt and Alabama, I, I mean, that. You know, that really is rewarding to hear because that was really the main goal with this. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had started noticing that the coverage was becoming too focused on a handful of programs. I mean, you got your Ohio State, you got your Alabama coverage, and that was pretty much it on the national scale. And I wanted to dig in fully into all 66 of these because, as you know, you know, all 66 programs have their unique history. So, um, yeah, it's great to hear that, to see that shine through through the pages because that was the main goal. And there's a link in the description of the podcast to where you can find Brett's Pick 6 Preview Magazine. That's also, if you're listening on YouTube, you can also find it in the description there as well. Now, before we go on our deep dive all around the SEC and hit on all 14 teams, i got to get your thoughts on the big topic here in in all of college football. Texas and Oklahoma coming to the SEC and being the traditionalist I know you – that you are, I got a feeling how you're leaning on this one, buddy. Yeah, for sure. Well, you're right about me loving the tradition of the game. I, you know, I love the old history, the regionality of the sport, uh, how, how it used to be important to, you know, win your state rivalry game and win your regional conference and then go on to anything national, but uh, it's kind of reversed. So a couple things. First, to the SEC, congrats. I think definitely congrats are in order from their perspective, bringing in two blue blood programs like Texas and Oklahoma and their massive national followings. Uh, that's a win, certainly, for, for you guys, the SEC. Um, for Oklahoma and Texas, um, I guess congrats as well, because maybe they just think that this is going to go towards the, the super conferences and they're reserving a seat at, you know, the most prestigious conference out there. I mean, backed up by not just the money, but by the fan support, the passion down there, the, the stadium sizes, the boosters, everything. I mean, you know, for a fact, the SEC is never going away. So if the big 12 was unstable, congrats to them for securing their future there in the SEC. Um, so, you know, both parties win really, uh, just on a general national note. And I mean, I, I, it'd be a shame to see the big 12 dissolve and see all those Texas teams, uh, losing their historic rivals and seeing Bedlam go away and, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there are some positives there. I think this is just the first domino of a bigger impact 
uh, moving towards the, the super conferences or even something uh, external from the NCAA. We, we don't know if that's going to happen eventually. Maybe this thing you know, moves outside of the NCAA's domain even further. So who knows, but congrats to the SEC for now, uh, and congrats to both programs. It's uh, big wins for both, both sides. Well, let's dive into your SEC projections here, starting with the SEC East. And I thought it might be a little fun to work our way from the bottom, go up. And no surprise here, number seven in the SEC East, according to Pick 6 Previews, the Vanderbilt Commodores. What do you see in store for the debut season of the Clark Lee era? Yeah, so obviously coming off of a tough season, it was their first winless team in school history. Um, but really, uh, you know, the bigger news has been off the field. It's been uh, hiring Clark Lee, uh, an alma, you know, a, uh, an alumni coming back to his alma mater there after leading successful defenses at Notre Dame with a, a tough 4-2-5 scheme and a really strong front seven really uh, defined them last year at Notre Dame in the last few years. So uh, bringing in a, a proven defensive mind there, an alumni that cares about the program, loves the program. But also the off-the-field news was that they secured that big financial uh, commitment from the school, and that's something that Vanderbilt's dealt with. Um, it's, a, it's been a tug of war, you know, a push and pull of the academic side of the college and then the athletics. And so to, to finally get some money going towards that budget increase uh, is huge. Uh, specifically on the field, yeah, it's going to be tough to move up the, the SEC ladder this year going through a coach transition year, um, you know, coming off the, the, num the number one defense, uh, worst defense in America last year, according to my numbers, uh, just a brutal season. So, you know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a tough transition year, but. I like the moves going forward. I think it was time for a change. Yeah, well, at least uh, Vanderbilt's got a quarterback they can build around. I know a lot of SEC teams probably envious that they don't have a Ken Seals on the roster. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, for sure. He became just the third true freshman to start in the season opener in the SEC since 1972. Uh, broke a lot of Vanderbilt freshman records. Um, you know, he, he shined throughout the season at certain points. And, yeah, for sure. I mean, bringing back an experienced quarterback is something to, to build around, um, you know, for the new staff. But, um, yeah, it's going to be tough moving forward, though, especially it's going to take a few cycles, I think, to install that defense. Um, you know, Derek Mason was a defensive guy himself. Um, you know, they're, they're one of their best players, Ty Daly, departing for Virginia Tech. Donovan Kaufman transferred to Auburn, you know, kind of following Mason there. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough transition, but it um, seems like positive off the field and positive hire. So uh, you can only go up. Well, Cousin Shane, the real reason he's not on the show, Brett's got the Vols number six in the SEC East. Oh, man, Cousin Shane may never speak to you again. Well, with Cousin Shane, uh, you know, it's, it's just a matter of the transfer portal. Uh, you know, all that, you've seen all that talent go day by day from the portal um, it's got to be tough because these aren't just backups. These aren't just roster guys or young freshmen. These were your all-conference caliber players, potential All-Americans like Henry T. there, middle linebacker. Mm -hmm. um, seeing these guys leave is just uh, it, it's just crippling to the roster. And when you couple that with a big offensive uh, scheme change, you know you're talking about going from the old traditional offense now towards this hyper-tempo UCF Josh Heupel offense. There's going to be a transition there. So. Um, in, a, in a tough division uh, with Alabama in the cross division, that's a tough draw and a, probably an automatic loss there. I think it's going to be tough to, to move up the SEC ladder. Now, one of the games you've got as one of the best non-conference games in all of college football involving an SEC team, 
Pitt coming to Tennessee week two of the season. Thoughts on Pitt and uh, what are the odds that the Vols are able to get that win early in the season, build some momentum in the first season of the Josh Heupel era? Yeah, so with Pittsburgh, you're talking about a program that uh, they've always had a strong defense the last couple years under uh, Pat Narduzzi. But the, the thing for them is they're replacing multiple All-Americans uh, on, along their defensive line and then two All-ACC safeties uh, with Hamlin and Ford leaving. So, yeah, so they're going to be early in the season definitely transitioning. That's a chance to, to, to grab a win there against Pitt. Um, offensively, we've seen Kenny Pickett as their starter now. This will be his fifth straight season as a starter. Everyone knows that name, even outside the SEC footprint. Uh, he's back with a rare fifth year as a starter. So um, we've kind of seen the ceiling there on offense. So, yeah, I think that's definitely a winnable game. I have them both in that uh, you know top 40, top 50 range of my overall rankings. So it's definitely a winnable game for Tennessee. Um, you know, a couple things have to happen before then. You've got to determine a quarterback. Of course, you've got a couple Power 5 starters coming in with Hendon Hooker, Virginia Tech, Joe Milton, Michigan, and then, of course, the incumbents, Bailey and Maher. So um, based on where that goes in, in, uh, in preseason camp, that'll go a long way. And, you know, and then just like I said at the top, just kind of filling in all these transfer gaps. I mean, the running backs are gone. Some big offensive line names are gone. And, and Henry T there at linebacker. So, you know, having guys step up and, and, and fill in those shoes is going to be real important off the, you know, right away in the, early in the season. All right, number five in the East. I think a little bit of a surprise here. The South Carolina Gamecocks. You just made a bunch of fans in Columbia there. Certainly sounds like you're buying into old Beamer ball down there. Yeah, so this was really neck and neck for Tennessee and South Carolina uh, for the fifth place there in the SEC East. I mean, I have Carolina 50th, I have Tennessee 52nd overall, so almost a tie there. Um, I just they, they avoid Alabama, unlike Tennessee. But yeah, with the hire, I, I really like the hire. Um, so this is a little bit off the grid. Nobody saw this name coming. He wasn't a former head coach. He wasn't a former coordinator. Uh, not so much an SEC guy. I mean, he, he's coming from Oklahoma directly. But what I liked is his moves on offense, the way he's pairing his experience with Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley's offense um, with the LSU Joe Brady system that worked, uh, bringing in Marcus Satterfield. So uh, schematically, I think it's important that they're modernizing um, from that must-champ offense that really just was stuck in the mud for the last five years. So I think schematically, it might not happen overnight, but uh, it's certainly a strong move. Now, personnel-wise, I like their offensive line. I think that's a solid unit there. One of the best running back tandems in the uh, the conference. Um, A top 100 recruit there, uh, top 100 quarterback, Luke Doty. Luke, no, Luke Doty, sorry, Mm -hmm. um, with a dual threat, you know, uh, skill set. So a lot of, a lot's going to change there on their offense after really a, a slow-moving unit recently. On defense, though, I do love them along the defensive line. A lot of edge rush potential. A couple five-stars there with, uh, with Pickens and Birch. The question will be how can they replace their secondary with a lot of those stars moving on, whether it be the NFL or, or transfer portal. So um, a lot to like. I think it's still, you know, labeled as a transition year. They're still going to be below average, but uh, have them fifth up there. Yeah, and that doesn't totally surprise me. I mean, I've been cautioning people that 5-1, uh, and 4-2, and two, that type of start, not out of the realm of possibility for the Gamecocks going into year one of the Beamer era. Uh, the schedule, you know, the back half is rough, but the first half of it, outside of that Georgia matchup, I mean, they're – I think they they have the ability to win 
just about every single game that first half, again, outside of that Georgia matchup. So uh, would you agree with that statement? Yeah, the schedule definitely sets up nicely there with the FCS opener, uh, East Carolina. I know that you can't overlook them. They're, they're, uh, they're punchy down there. But I think that's a 2-0 start. Probably lose to Georgia. Kentucky's definitely a swing game. I mean, that could go a long way. Uh, for building confidence in this new uh, this new coaching regime, because if they if they're able to beat Kentucky, which I don't see happening, but let's just say they do, that's a four and one start heading into in a Neyland Stadium, mm-hmm. another swing game. You win that, you're going to beat Vanderbilt. You're talking six and one going into late October. Um, I know there's a couple ifs in there, but it's not the, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, you know, there like I said, there is roster talent in certain areas. I love the run game. I love the offensive line. Uh, the the defensive pass rush, so uh, definitely doable, um, and it's going to be huge too because, like you saw from media days with with Shane Meber, uh, you know, getting high reviews from the media circles and fans alike. Perception is so important in this sport, so he already has the perception on his side. Uh, I can't imagine what a six and one or even a five and two start would do for perception. You'd probably have a ranking next to your name too heading into that game uh, at Kyle Field, October twenty third. So. Yeah, we'll see. I, I like the move as a program. It might take a few years, but uh, even this uh, September, they could get some wins. All right, number four in the SEC East, you got the Missouri Tigers, who came out strong in the debut era, Eli Drinkowitz era. Uh, what do you got in store for the Tigers this year? Yeah, so with Missouri and Kentucky, really, it was a battle for third for me. Um, and, you know, when I when I dug into it and my numbers show this, I think Missouri was a little bit uh, misleading of a record there at 5-5. Five and five. When you look at their wins – uh, you know, their average margin of win compared to their ma- average margin of victory. Sorry, your average margin of victory compared to average margin of loss. Uh, the losses were, were blowouts on average, and they barely scraped by some of these wins. So when you dig into it a little bit past just the record, I, you know, I think they're a little bit misleading. Uh, you know, uh, there's some pieces to like. I like Connor Basilek. I know he didn't grade too well in your SEC quarterback predictions, but um, he did have a nice uh, accuracy percentage last year, completion rate. Um, his quarterback rating was the second highest among the returning SEC quarterbacks for this year. Um, and they, they added some great pieces at receiver that were lacking. But uh, we'll see. I, you know, I'm wondering, too, a whole year of film on this new uh, Drinkowitz offense for opposing SEC defensive coordinators. I wonder if they can uh, make some improvements against it because it is a lot of window dressing before the snap. It's, it's pre-snap motions. It's variable formations. And uh, I wonder if um, some of that you know, beginner's luck might have worn off. We'll see. We'll see if it's lasting. But I have them fourth right now in the East. Yeah, and they're a tough team to peg, man. I mean, they lost a number of guys in the transfer portal. They gained some good players like Mookie Cooper and uh, Blaze Aldridge, uh, Cooper from Ohio State, Aldridge from Rice. And then uh, their secondary was looking like it would be a very big weakness. Then they land the pair of uh, former Tulsa corners. So, uh, you know, throwing in that many new faces on a new system, new defensive coordinator, they're just a tough team for me to peg. Do you – what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. And another thing I, that I didn't like in, in uh, picking through the East was uh, their defensive coordinator leaving. He's uh, Ryan Walters is heading up to Illinois to join Brett Bielema's new staff up there. So you have a coordinator transition there on defense. Um, and then we talked about some of the offensive struggles. We'll see if, that, uh, if they're able to take a next step or if the SEC coordinators catch up. Um, I did like their their transfer move of Mookie Cooper. He looked great in their spring showcase. You can't really call that one a game, but you know you could see the potential there from him. Um, 
And like I said with Basilic, you at least know what you have. That's your floor, if you want to call it that. It's a high floor. So, yeah, there's wins to be had. Uh, we'll get to them next, but I just like Kentucky's proven model as a program and their program identity. Uh, more predictable, and I like what they have there. So we'll get to them next. Yeah, right there you got S in <clears> – <throat> Yeah, right there, number three in the SEC East, the Kentucky Wildcats. And I even flirted with put, throwing them ahead of Florida. But, you know, with the uncertainty of what exactly you're getting in the new play caller, Liam Cohen, you, you don't have any idea what you're getting at the quarterback position. I couldn't justify putting them any higher than number three. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so with Mark Stoops, he's really built a proven program, a, a proven program identity. It's a smash-mouth team, a strong offensive line, a strong defense, um, and that's all coming back. And uh, they even plugged in a few holes that they potentially could have had along the offensive line. They, they just signed um, Darry Rosenthal from LSU, a multi-year starter, an all-conference caliber guy. Uh, and that was late in the process. That was right before I hit publish. That was just a nice boost on top because um, there's a there's a couple other All-SEC and All-American candidates along their offensive line, uh, you know, with um, – with Darian Kennard and Luke Fortner both coming back. Uh, so pieces to like there on the offensive line, that's going to stay the same. I love Chris Rodriguez, their running back there. Uh, and even not just him, but Cavassier Smoke, that forms a nice two-man tandem. They're going to run the ball a ton again. But really, if they can get anything from their pass game, this starts to unlock them as a top 25 team. Um, because remember, in 2019, when the quarterbacks went down, they went just true wildcat with Bowden, and it, it was incredible. I, you know, I, I've been very outspoken about his performance, how incredible that was. Um, but you just got to have some passing to, to really—it's not sustainable. So, in 2020, it happened again, one of the worst passing attacks in the country. So, I think it's all—you know—it can only go up from there. They brought in an LA Rams uh, coordinator. You know, he's got ties to Sean McVay. I know everyone loves to hear that, but. Um, it's it just got to improve in their past game. A couple power five guys coming in, like Will Levis from Penn State. He was Sean Clifford's backup. Had some time against Ohio State in some random games. So, I don't know. Overall, though, I, I love what their, you know, their program identity, and, and they're a solid pick for third. Now, I did want to ask you this about Kentucky, given the fact that, uh, you know, if you're looking just at their defensive depth chart, not a ton of returning starting experience, but – uh, you know, maybe we give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, knowing that a lot of these players are in year two, year three, year four of the Mark Stoop system. And we all know what a great developer of talent he has been. And the recruiting has significantly taken a step up here in recent seasons. Uh, do you just kind of give them the benefit of the doubt that uh, even without a ton of starting experience returning on defense, that that unit is going to be a, a strength of the team? Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, they lose both their defensive tackles there, Phil Hoskins and Quentin Bohanna. Uh, they were both huge. I mean, Bohanna literally, I mean, he was 350 pounds there at nose tackle, just a, a huge space eater for them. So you lose some some proven guys there. Uh, they got a boost with uh, defensive end Josh Paschal deciding to return for a bonus season. He'll push for all-conference honors. And you have DeAndre Square also, um, pretty much the team's defensive leader there. He started every game since that 2018 bowl game. So there's experience uh, at the linebackers, uh, off the edge. Um, so there's enough to like. And, and like you hinted at and what I've said, that their staff has really proven that they can develop players, they can recruit to their schemes. That recruiting profile has risen. 
uh, top 25 class. I think it was one of their first ever was in 2020. Those guys are now entering their, I guess, would be their second years on campus. So they're going to get a nice talent boost uh, from the young guys as well as some veterans that are now stepping into starting spots. So I'm pretty confident with what their staff has done. Uh, Mike White has proven himself as a defensive coordinator and has done more with less talent. And I say less in quotes, just uh, according to recruiting rankings, uh, less than uh, some of the other counterparts in the division. So, uh, you know, a ton of respect for the staff. All right, number two in the East, you got the Florida Gators. And looking at your game grader, uh, Florida's offense rated out 93%, one of the highest in the country. And then you flip over to the defense, only 27. Horrible year there for Todd Grantham's unit. I don't know how you talk about the Florida Gators without just kind of pinpointing the focus on that defense. Do you think – that they turn it around on that side of the ball this season. Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, it's one of those moments where I love when the when the numbers actually make sense with what you watch on film because that's a perfect example. I mean, we all watched Florida last year. Their offense was unstoppable, at least their passing attack mm-hmm. unstoppable with Kyle Trask, a Heisman candidate. Uh, you know, Kadarius Tony, just a total X factor. Pitts, the big frame over the middle. So yeah, there was an unstoppable offense defensively. They couldn't stop anybody, and this was kind of a shock to me. Um, of course, a, a year ago, uh, you know, in last year's season preview book, I went against the green. I had Florida to win the SEC East. Everyone else had Georgia. A lot of people had Georgia. Um, so that was a nice win. Although I took it one step too far, I actually had them winning the SEC. Mm-hmm. I knew that offense would be legit and one of the best in the country, but I thought the defense would be their usual top 20, top 15 stature, and they fell apart. So I, I whiffed on half of it. Um, but for what it's worth with Ty Grantham, he has a, a, a strong track record of, you know, turning out pro players, turning out all SEC guys, and, you know, building attacking aggressive defenses. So, you know, I think he's earned himself a mulligan. He's earned himself a mulligan. We'll see how 2021 goes because there's a ton of talent there. Uh, You know, five stars galore, especially along the defensive line and and the linebacker stable, um, returning starters in the secondary. There's a lot to like. I think that they get back to their normal roots. The bigger question mark will be how they reload on offense, and there's definitely going to be a step back. That's just obvious given the lo- the loss of Trask and Tony and Pitts. So, um, but if anyone's a proven quarterback guru, I think we can give Dan Mullen credit, and it's not just from Trask, but you're talking about his time at Mississippi State with Dak Prescott, his previous stop in Gainesville when he was rotating Chris Leak and Tebow, even back to 2004 Utah, how he helped develop Alex Smith. Uh, the future number one overall pick there on the undefeated team in 04. So, yeah, I mean, he's got a track record there and a couple prospects there. Emory Jones, I think, starts the season. We'll see. Uh, it, there's a lot to work with, though. Yeah, and one of my favorite things about Dan Mullen, I mean, he gets all this credit for being a quarterback developer, and he deserves all that. But in my mind, the thing he does best is just adapt his personnel, adapt his system to the strengths of those players, in particular the quarterback, I think with what Florida's got returning, I would not be surprised at all if they're one of the best rushing teams in the SEC next season. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good point because when you think back to most of his offenses, they were quarterback run heavy. I mean, think of Dak Prescott. Even after him, Nick Nick Fitzgerald Mm -hmm. shouldered a ton of carries per game, put up over 1,000 yards rushing. Um, so it's almost like the Trask team, the Trask offense was really his outlier. That was a rare pivot to pass first and pass second and pass heavy. Uh, so he's going to go back to his roots here. He's going to give Emory Jones more carries. Um, I mean, even last year, Jones was in there for about five carries a game in some packages, some wildcat packages. But in a normal offense, he's going to get his you know, 10 to 15 carries a game. 
Um, and you know what? They, they have talent there at running back. These are former five-star guys that transferred in. Uh, Lorenzo Lingard from Miami, five-star, and Demarcus Bowman from Clemson is a five-star. So if this offensive line can take a step forward, you know that, that might have been holding him back a little bit. Uh, but if these running backs start to get loose, uh, they, it could be a great offense and, and return to a strong run game. All right, the beast of the East. This year you got the Georgia Bulldogs winning the East, returning to Atlanta. And not only that, you've got the Bulldogs going all the way to the college football playoff. Tell us why you're so high on Georgia. Yeah, for sure. I think that it's all there this year, and there's a window of opportunity that they really need to execute on. And um, I see that Kirby Smart and Georgia get, you know, ripped to shreds on Twitter and online about how they underperform. I don't, I don't buy that. I mean, you're looking at a program that's a consistent top five or top six team. Uh, they've made playoffs. They've made national title games. Uh, they made SEC title games. So I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say they underperform. Um, but what I will say is that this is a, you know, college football is all about timing. And there's a window here they got to execute because Florida's going through a massive transition there on offense. And that Alabama, we'll get to them later in the show, but they're going through a big roster overhaul as well. I think the, the avenue is there for them to, to drive into Atlanta and steal the SEC this year and make a playoff push. And, uh, and real quick, why I love them so much this year, first it's the recruiting. You always start there. They have the number one overall uh, five-year average and the number one three-year average. They've gone toe-to-toe with Alabama. They're right there with them roster-wise. Uh, the defense is always top five, top ten. Uh, there's, there's just so many guys coming back, all-American caliber players, the linebackers. They even plugged a couple holes in their secondary uh, via the transfer portal, bringing in an all-American from West Virginia, Tyke Smith, and uh, you know, a contributor from Clemson um, at corner. So, uh, but then, really, what, what brings them from an eight- or nine-win team on defense alone to a playoff contender and playoff team is their offense taking a huge step. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of college football fans saw them early in the year and saw how they're, they were still stuck in the 1980s offensively and got tagged with a couple losses and turned them off. But, you know, those last five games or four games with JT Daniels in there, you started to see that Todd Monk and offense, that vertical passing, that modernized offense really come to life. And it was unstoppable. I know that they played some weaker teams, but even when you adjust for opponent, they were very strong after that bye week and uh, after Daniels took over. So uh, I see all of that coming back. I see a five-star arm with Daniels. I see five stars at receiver. They always have a top offensive line, and it could be the best receiver, I mean, uh, running back core out there with uh, with Zamir White and a, a host of five stars behind him. So I think it all comes together. I think the the, uh, the, the platform is there for them to, to make it to the SEC title game and, and win it this time around. And how excited are you for this uh, season opener in Charlotte, Georgia, and Clemson? What You know, this is the game of the year, they're saying already. I just did a podcast with a bunch of Clemson homers, and they were saying they got, you know, the next great quarterback. They got four first-round picks on the defensive line. How do you think the Tigers match up with the Georgia Bulldogs? Yeah, this game pick was pretty much found, uh, you know, foundational for my overall national picks. We'll get to that in my playoff picks. But uh, with Georgia making the playoff, I was pretty much saying they're going to beat Clemson here in the opener. Um, what I, the position group I really like is Georgia's front seven against Clemson's offensive line. Uh, you know, their their offensive line struggled last year, and before 2020, those those few years when they were making national titles and playoffs. Their offensive line and their run game were number one in the number one in the nation in yards per carry uh, and run push. So they were incredible until last year. They took a major step back. They were, I think they finished about 70th nationally, middle of the pack. They're not getting their push they used to. Um, and when you look at this Georgia front seven with so many guys, um, 
you know, I know they lose Adjulari there, but with Anderson back, uh, Nakobe Dean in the middle, Quay Walker, um, and then up front, so many guys, uh, you know, Tyler Davis, defensive tackle there, could, could push for All-American honors. So, anyways, I love their front seven against Clemson's uh, O-line. Uh, I know that he started a couple games as quarterback, DJU, but still a, a relatively new starter uh, with that with a new running back stable. And I just I really like Georgia in this matchup, and it's kind of going to set the tone for my 2021 preview. Well, let's jump to the SEC West, where you got Mississippi State number seven in the West, toughest division in all of college football. And hell, man, if they would have had a, a good offense last year, this would have been one hell of a team. But it was kind of the reverse of what we were expecting. The offense struggled. The defense was great. What do you see from the Bulldogs this year? Yeah, for sure. And um, really, when you when you talk about Mike Leach's offense, and he says it himself. It's all about reps, 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 and that's just doing these same pass concepts a thousand times in practice uh, for timing and for spacing and, and the whole bit. So when spring practice was knocked out and summer and most of fall camp was knocked out and he was you know, transitioning schools and rosters, you kind of saw the writing on the wall that it, it was, it was going to be a bit out of sync. Now that opener against LSU, that was just incredible. But after that, it, it really slowed down the offense. What I did is I looked back on, on his two recent um, head coaching stops at Texas Tech and Washington State and looked from year one to year two what kinds of gains of efficiency they had uh, given the extra year of reps and practice. And uh, what I found is they're, they're averaging adding 11 points per game. So from year one to year two, they're going to add 11 points per game on offense and add almost 100 yards passing, too, per game. But most importantly, they're adding uh, their, their touchdown to interception ratio goes way down. Um, which is going to be crucial for this offense if they want to take the next step. Uh, they finished just 110th in touchdowns to pick ratio. It was almost one to one, which is uh, is not very good, obviously. <laughs> so um, if they can uh, hold on to the ball a bit more and and work on that timing, I think this offense takes the next step. Now here's the the issue being in the SEC West is I think they're going to make a major jump statistically and on the field what you watch the whole bit. But is that enough to keep pace with this division? I don't think it is. I mean, uh, I, I really struggled putting someone seventh in this division. I think it's the best in college football. I even have them number 40 overall, Mississippi State. So that gives, gives you a picture of how strong this, uh, this whole division is. Yeah, and with defense struggling across the board in college football last season, how impressed were you with uh, Zach Arnett bringing that 3-3-5 defense to Starkville? And just, uh, you know, how impressive – that Mississippi State defense was. They don't have the talent of a lot of these other SEC teams, but they held their own, and, and they really were the uh, the stars of the show down there last season. Yeah, they really did, especially when you factor in some of the uh, off-the-field quarantine stuff they had to go through. They missed a lot of uh, a lot of schedule or a, a lot of practice reps, and a lot of starts and, and contributors were out. So, uh, given that and the scheme change going to an outlier scheme like the three-three-five. I think it's only uh, I think it's only played at a few schools nationwide. So uh, to be able to install that overnight with a lot of backups was very impressive. Uh, Mississippi State they improved in 13 of 14 out of my defensive stat categories, but most importantly rose into the top five in my opponent adjusted per play percentiles. And I know that sounds boring, but basically they were a top five SEC defense last year, and they're in kind of a unique situation for 2021 where overall as a defense, they return a ton of production and, and starts and stats. Um, that's because a lot of guys were in due to quarantine and they got a lot of ahead of schedule reps for young guys. So they return a lot overall, but they do lose four big stars at the top of the, at the, top of the roster, multi-year starters too. So 
Um, you know, it's a push and pull between you lose four great guys, but everything else is all back and experience. So we'll see. Yeah, but I was very impressed in his debut. Well, all right, number six in the East, you got the Auburn Tigers, and I've taken a, all kinds of hell for putting Auburn seventh. Uh, let the people know that uh, why you and I are so low on the Auburn Tigers this year. Yeah, well, I think we were on the same page last year with Auburn. I think we we were a year ahead of this. We caught that one where I think the AP poll had them in the top 15. I didn't even have them ranked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you were you kind of echoed those sentiments, I, I believe, on Twitter. Um, either way, we were proven right. Uh, for this year, again, I, I hated putting these teams so low in the division. It's just such a crowded division. But, um, yeah, first with the, the Gus Malzahn transition, um, you know, it was always tough. I mean, he set the bar so high in 2013 with that miracle season and the, the miracle of Jordan Hare and the kick six and, um, you know, the run all the way to the national title game. He set it very high, the bar. And from there, it was, you know, the next seven seasons were all four-plus losses or some were five-plus uh, losses seasons. So, um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, they were kind of stuck in a, a tough spot there, especially sharing the state and sharing the rivalry, the Iron Bowl, with Nick Saban. Uh, it's just an almost an impossible situation i mean heck he went three and five against saban that might that might not sound very good three and five the rest of the sec is three and 61 (laughs) over that same time frame so i mean it's just all relative i mean i think he was an excellent coach it's just when you're compared against the greatest ever it's it's going to be tough so um yeah so transition wise the, the the offense looks completely different so where it was all shotgun and it was a lot of quarterback run um, and optionality from uh, the Malzahn offense, it's now a very traditional um, throwback type, uh, you know, smash mouth offense with Brian Harson coming down from Boise State. Uh, kind of a misconception with Boise State. People nationally just think of the Statue of Liberty and some trick plays. This is a very physical, you know, run first offense. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be a lot of pre-snap motion and formation shifts and um, but really just a power run game. It's going to be under center, which I don't think they've, they've been under center at all under Malzahn. So it's going to look a lot different. It might take a year to, to really transition. And uh, and defensively, real quick with uh, the defense, I loved Kevin Steele. I thought that he was incredible there for years. And uh, this one might be a, another heck of a transition going from his 4-2-5 scheme over to uh, Derek Mason's 3-4. So, um, yeah, so given all those factors, I think that they take another step down and they'll be around six in the SEC West. Now, week three of the season, they travel to Penn State. And maybe you and I are both dead wrong about Auburn, but if we are, I think it's got to start there. Pulled off the upset on the road. That's another one of your top non-conference games in all of college football next season. Auburn at Penn State. What can you tell us about Penn State and uh, just the challenge that Auburn's got going up on the road and facing uh, you know 100,000 strong in that stadium? Yeah, uh, big time. I mean, I'm based out of Pennsylvania. I'm not a Penn Stater by any means, but I, I'm around a lot of Penn State people, and I, I'll tell you, they've been talking about this game for a while. Uh, they are gonna. I think they're dedicating it as the whiteout game of the year, and if you've seen Penn State at night, it's the entire stadium, 110,000, wears white, and they're crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the toughest atmospheres in college football. So, um, you know, and, and specifically to Penn State's roster, it's a really strong defense. They're uh, they're changing their offense up a bit. They're going to be airing it out, kind of like the transition Georgia went through, bringing in a Big 12 coordinator and Big 12 passing offense. So um, all I can say is they are, they're fired up for that matchup. They, it's rare to get an SEC team up in Pennsylvania, and um, you know, I'll just say they're, they're going to be ready for it. So it's a good measuring stick for Auburn. All right, number five in the West, you got the Arkansas Razorbacks, Sam Pittman digging that team out of the cellar. How great of a job did Sam Pittman and his 
coordinators, his coaching staffs in, in their entirety do last year with this team? Well, yeah, they were they were incredible, and I was really pulling for, for Sam Pittman in Arkansas because uh, every year I see these guys, these national writers, they run over to Twitter, they make fun of certain college uh, you know, coaching hires, like they were all laughing at the Pittman hire, but I was saying, and as I always say, hey, give him a year or two, let's see his coordinator hires, let's see how he can recruit, let's see how his schemes work out. You know, you can never write off a, a coaching carousel hire right away, and, and uh, he proved me right. He hired two excellent coordinators there with Kendall Bryles on offense, Barry Odom on defense. Of course, SEC fans know him from Missouri, the way that he turned the SEC worst defense at Missouri into a top three. Uh, the same thing happened here. Arkansas was one of the worst defenses in the last five years, and uh, you could see huge developments on defense, and it's all coming back, a ton of returning production on defense. Um, so, yeah, long story short, you see their 3-7 and seven record, and you might not you know, think much of it, but when you dig into those games and you look back on some of those game tapes, they really should have been 5-5. Five and five. Two of those games, I mean, the Auburn game was a, a botched call at the end where there was a backward spike fumble, uh, and even the, the refs admitted they had blown the call. They would have beaten Auburn. And then LSU also, they had LSU on the ropes on the eventual game-winning drive. Uh, they, had, they stopped them, but there was a targeting penalty and you can argue if that was incorrect or not. I think it might have been incorrect. So you're talking they could have been or should have been five and five, and that's that's a huge accomplishment given their you know their their recent pass under Chad Morris. So uh, it's all back except for Felipe Franks, who is the perfect guy for a transition season. But now you have a couple you know running quarterbacks, and uh, Bryles is already starting to implement more RPO, more quarterback design runs. So I think this offense might look a little different for the better even. Uh, so much skill at the skill talents, um, or so much talent at the skill positions, I should say, um, and a lot to like. And then the last bit real quick is, of course, you know, Sam Pittman was an offensive line coach. That was his M.O., and I've, I've read that they, they added an average of 30 pounds of muscle to each of their starting five linemen over the past offseason. So uh, the hogs are beefing up, and they're going to look strong. Hey, sounds like Cousin Shane over there. But, uh, hey, week two of the season, they play Texas. What can you tell us about how – Arkansas matches up against the Longhorns. Yeah, it's uh, an old Southwest Conference matchup and now a future Southeastern Conference matchup. I think it's cool uh, seeing those two. I mean, uh, they're, they're close proximity-wise. That'll be one of the better SEC matchups that we like to see each year going forward, given their history. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I think with Texas, they're going through a transition coaching-wise, uh, quarterback-wise, losing Sam Ellinger, their multi-year starter. He did everything for them. Um, we'll see. I mean, that's a great opportunity to, to get a marquee victory over a likely ranked, uh, you know, I call them a helmet team or a blue blood team. Um, so yeah, I, I like Arkansas's chances there. I think that place is going to be rocking really their first big, uh, home game in a long time where, you know, it's not just a huge underdog scenario. They're, they're a legit competitor this year. Um, I even thought about them going up as high as fourth in the West, but still fifth in the West, number 28 overall, nearly a top 25 team themselves. I like Arkansas a lot this year. All right, next up in the West, you got Ole Miss Rebels, number four in the West. And I thought Florida's game grade was off whack till I got down here at Ole Miss. 86% on offense, 2% on defense. Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, train wreck caliber here in Oxford. Uh, how tough of an out is Ole Miss going to be next season as long as they can uh, improve that defense? Yeah, so starting with the offense, that's what really uh, everyone loves and what, what I love about them. Uh, you saw it there in Lane Kiffin's first season, the way that he, uh, he tags every play with a run play and a pass play, a lot of optionality. 
really just make the defense wrong every snap. And we saw it play out. Matt Corral was basically perfect all season. He had two hiccup games. Uh, I think against Arkansas, he had, I think it was like six interceptions or something. But mm-hmm. um, overall, it was an incredible season by him. He finished in the top three of most my metrics, uh, most of my passing rat- metrics. Um, he's up there with Sam Howell and Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma as the, the top three quarterbacks for 2021. So, I mean, incredible start there when you look at this team. Uh, great duo running back uh, with Snoop Connor and Jaron Ely. Um, they do lose their two pat their two top pass catchers with Moore and Yaboa gone, but uh, they they've built a nice stable there. They also have a nice legacy at receiver, a nice lineage. How they keep reloading and, and sending guys to the NFL. So I like them there. There's firepower, uh, and four of the five offensive line starters are back. But you know, just the offense alone is only good enough for five or six wins. But really, what moves them up the ladder in the SEC West for me is the developments on defense. They really hit the middle of their defense hard. They added not just number one, but number one and number two junior college defensive tackles there. So the the center of their defense is fortified, I think. They started to play better defense towards the end of the year. You saw that. They held Indiana, top ten team, to their season lows in the bowl game. So I think they're making progress on defense, enough to be a more balanced team and a legit top 25 team. Number three in the West, you got the LSU Tigers. And before you dive into uh, your thoughts on Ed Ogeron's latest team, Tell me, how tough was it to pick between LSU, Texas A&M, and Alabama? Because I think these three are are neck and neck. Absolutely, these three are all proven. Uh, you know the way that they the way they recruit, uh, their staffs I like, and we'll get to LSU's uh, in a second here. But for context for the listeners, this top three was so tough. I have them all in the top eleven nationally. So I've got uh, Alabama, I think fifth. A&M 8th, uh, and then LSU 11th. So these are all amongst the top in the country. If they were in any other Power 5 division, they'd probably be the predicted winner. Um, but, yeah, so with LSU, I've been telling people, I hope you got your jokes in last year. I hope that you got all your, you know, all your Twitter memes and all your, you know, all your jokes in because that was the all-time transition year. We've never seen one like it. Uh, losing, I think it was 14 draft picks, the Heisen winner, both coordinators, or at least the pass game coordinator. So, so much was gone. We kind of knew a transition was going to happen in 2020. It was worsened by a couple bad coordinator hires, at least defensively with Bo Pelini, and the offense didn't click to anything near what we saw in 2019. Um, you know, so all of that's behind them. It was a very young roster last year. All that is back now experience-wise. They're a top-five recruiter every year. Um, they, I think they've found their, their, uh, their quarterback there with Max Johnson, um, it was a uh, you know a predicted quarterback battle between three guys. I know one guy transferred out, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think that 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 what Johnson brings better than Miles Brennan is his ability in the RPO game. And I think you're going to see a return to that. You're going to see a return to what worked in 2019 um, by his hires at offensive coordinator, bringing in Jake Peets and DJ Mangus, both guys that worked with Joe Brady himself on the Carolina Panthers offensive staff. So they're looking to reinstall what worked here in 2019. I think they'll get there. Um, and uh, yeah, really overall as a theme with LSU, when you look at each position group, it's just incredible the amount of talent that is stockpiled. And now that all that talent is a year more experienced and developed. So I, I, I think it's a legit team. And how do they match up in the season opener going on the road to UCLA in the Rose Bowl? What can you tell us about the Bruins and how they potentially match up against uh, LSU? So the last three years under Chip Kelly, they have been really, uh, they've been a pushover, I guess you could say. They never really um, grew into what he had built at Oregon. 
But what I'll say is this is their best team he's had. Um, we started to see him fix two of the issues. So the main issues with him the first couple of years were at quarterback, the turnovers and the, and the destructive plays from quarterback. And secondly was the defense couldn't stop anybody. But last year in 2020, he fixed both. Uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson in his third year as a starter, he cleaned up the turnovers, he, he avoided sacks, and the offense took a major step. And then secondly, his hire, uh, bringing in Navy's coordinator to, to – uh, to revamp their defense, bring it more blitz-happy, you know, attacking, aggressive. They forced turnovers. They confused the, the opposing offenses, and they really took a step on defense too. So it's a more complete team than you're used to from UCLA. I actually have them near the top 25 nationally, uh, but I still like LSU with all that just stockpile of roster talent and five-star guys. Uh, I think LSU gets it done. All right, number two in the West, you got Texas A&M, and I know they love you down there in College Station. You're on Tex Ags every week of the season. What do you see from Jimbo and the boys this year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've been harping on this for a couple of years that A&M really is, is a sleeping giant as a program. They have all the fundamentals. Uh, the one thing you can't change is your location. I mean, right away they're located in, in the Texas football hotbed. Um, the other things that you know take longer and longer to develop are things like conference affiliation, stadium size, facilities, the fan base, the passionate alumni, the booster money. I mean, hey, all that, it sounds like an SEC program, right? So they, they really fit the mold. The thing that was really holding them back was coaching. They, they signed Jimbo Fisher. They made the investment there. Uh, the recruiting has followed. And, of course, it's inevitable the wins are going to follow. So last year, while most had them third or fourth or fifth even in the SEC West, I had them second. And that, that held true as they posted their highest ranking since 1939. And uh, when you look towards 2021, um, first on defense, nine starters are back. I know that losing Buddy Johnson and Bobby Brown are, are two of their best players from last year, but still with nine guys back, I love that. The secondary is very veteran and, and loaded there. Um, offensively, they do lose Kellen Mond, a three-year starter, and four of five of their linemen. If you remember, that offensive line was a candidate for the, uh, the Moore Award, um, which, and in my numbers, it reflects it as well, that they were top 15 both in run push and pass protection, the only team out there to do that. Uh, now, they do get their best guy back along the offensive line, Kenyon Green. Um, and really, I, I think this is the, the key question with A&M. If they hit on a quarterback, if this Haynes King comes out and is incredible, um, then they can really move up towards playoff caliber. If not, I still think they're strong enough defensively and at their offensive skill positions with guys like Weidermeyer and uh, Anias Smith um, to really uh, and, and Isaiah Spiller, too, at running back. Um, so even without a, a, a transcendental quarterback, I think they're still in that eight or nine win range and, and top two in the SEC West. So, of course, that leaves just Alabama, number one in the – what is it about the Crimson Tide that makes you think they're going to win the SEC West this year? Yeah, so they've just had such a proven run of reloading their talent. Uh, they're one of those that send so many guys to the NFL every year, but one of the few staffs that has proven they can reload almost every year. And uh, this isn't really anything, you know, earth-shattering to the listeners. Everyone knows Nick Saban's track record. Um so I think they've built up enough stock recruiting-wise uh, and their defense. It looks like they're going to be defense first, at least in September, to start the season for the first time since like 2015 or so. So there's a lot of proven production there on defense. Uh, I think it was just enough that until proven otherwise, they're my pick to win the SEC West. Although the difference is I didn't take that next step and put them automatically back into the playoff. Um, I think that their transitions on offense, losing three Heisman candidates, and no one's ever gone through that. No one's ever had three like that on the same offense. Um, two All-American linemen up front, uh, and then six NFL first-rounders. 
So the and the offensive coordinator too, call him plays. So it's a lot. It's more than usual for a transition team like this. Now, with that said, there's just five stars everywhere. I think it's enough to gel into a conference or at least a division winner. So it's kind of I'm stuck in between. I have them winning the division, but not good enough for the playoff right now as it stands. And of course, this team could gel and and you know mold into their normal saving machine come December. But as it stands right now, I like what Georgia has. Uh, experience-wise and, and roster-wise compared to what Alabama has on paper right now. Any concern that uh, they're on upset watch here week one against Miami and Atlanta, or is that just a ridiculous question to ask? I just don't see it. Uh, I mean, I've seen – I know it's a boring answer, but um, I've seen on Twitter that's a trendy upset pick, or I even saw a couple of people putting Miami in the playoff. I don't know. I mean, when you look back at what made it Miami great last year, there was two pieces. One was quarterback with De'Ara King. And, yes, he's returning for 2021, although he's coming off of a, a massive injury and surgery there after the bowl game. I think he's still, like, questionable for the opener. Um, and, secondly, what made them incredible was their defensive end and outside backer pass rush. And they sent three guys high in the NFL draft. They're all gone. So um, there's a lot of transition there. They're changing defensive coordinators. I don't know. I, I just don't buy it. And I think right out of the gate, especially given Saban, what was it, by that point, nine months of film prep and game prep, uh, I think Alabama is going to smack them. All right, Brett, I cannot thank you enough for joining the show and spending so much time breaking down each and every one of these SEC teams. Before you go, once again, can you remind the listeners, where can they find your work and tell them about that promo code for that SEC podcast listeners? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it's a tough exercise to try and uh, to try and get every team, you know, two or three minutes, but I go a lot deeper in the book. I break down every position group and, uh, and look at all the coordinators too, a little bit deeper. So I, I enjoyed this. Thanks for having me again. Uh, it's pick six previews.com at pick six previews on Twitter. And again, use that, uh, that discount code sec if interested and, uh, get a nice discount code for the, that sec podcast listeners. So uh, thanks again to you and Shane. Good luck. Uh, this fall again with the podcast. You know, this is one of the ones I, ch- I tune into each week. You guys do an incredible job covering the conference. Um, really a unique twist on it by bringing in the uh, the coach press conference quotes. I love that because, you know, you're not just throwing things out there. You're actually saying, all right, here's what the coaches are saying. Here's our reaction to it. Here's our analysis. Uh, I think it's a great breakdown for all 14 teams, and that's rare to get nowadays. So keep it up, and um, we'll talk again soon. I just want to say thanks again to Brett for hopping on the line. Really appreciate all that knowledge he dropped. What'd you think of that one, Shane? Oh man, like I said, uh, one of my all-time favorites. You know, not just the fact that it's like the one podcast or the one interview that I could do, and Mike's like, "Hey, are you not going to be available? Because if so, we're going to do it now." <laughs> Oh, man. Good stuff, as always, Mike. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's going to do it for this uh, episode of the show. Hope, uh, you know, starting strong. We've got another couple of guests lined up uh, for the coming week of uh, SEC content here, Shane. And, hell, we're, we're right at 30 days away. I believe the yeah. number is 33 as of Monday. And we got fall camps opening up all across the SEC this week. So we're going to have tons and tons of of coach comments and player comments in the coming days and weeks. And, man, the season is – it feels real now that we're beyond media days, doesn't it? 
isn't it wild? It's like this is a smokescreen. It's a distraction, this Texas-Oklahoma thing. It's consuming us, but I kind of love it because then you look down, you're like, holy shit, 30 days, we're playing football, you know? So it's like, yeah. I, I, I'm pumped up. Uh, we're actually going to have some team news coming out this week. So um, it, it's just, it's here, baby. I mean, it's it's a month away. It's here. Yeah, without a doubt, but I can't wait for it. This will be the best season ever. And of course, as always, if you made it this far, give us that five-star written review on the Apple Podcast app. Those are coming flying in. We're sending beer koozies out for each and every one of you that does that. I've been uh, running back and forth between the mailbox uh, (laughs) every hour, it seems like, the last week or two. So I really appreciate all those. And uh, hey, check us out on YouTube. That's growing. That's going to be a huge platform for us this year as well. But that's going to do it. Appreciate you, Shane, for hopping on the line. Appreciate each and every one of you for hanging out. Catch you on the next one. All right. See you guys. Go Vols.